Brad, do you mind if I shift this over a little bit? I like to pace to the right and to the left, and I feel contained if I can't. I don't want to be contained. Uh, I, it, my, yeah, my name's Chad Donahoe, as, as Brad uh, mentioned earlier, and it's, uh, it's a joy to be here. So I was here, last time I preached uh, was this last summer, so I recognize quite a few faces here, although I see some new faces, so it'll be good to meet you all. And grateful for you, Brad, just our friendship, grateful that uh, you pointed me in the direction of Deer Creek, and grateful that I don't have to do a Q&A afterwards, <laughs> grateful for all of that. So um, I begin, it's, it's kind of football season, so let me, let me start uh, the sermon in, in this way. Vince Lombardi, okay, if you recognize that name, Hall of Fame coach, Green Bay Packers, at the beginning of every football season, he, would, he had this statement that he was known for. Day one of training camp. How many of you know this statement I'm about to share, by the way? I wonder. Okay, maybe not. Day one of training camp. Here's all these professional football players. They show up day one, and he would gather them together. First thing you'd say is, gentlemen, this is a football. That was his day one. Because he understood the, uh, the importance of the fundamentals. This morning with this sermon, in a sense, um, I'm beginning with the fundamentals. It's this question. Who is Jesus? And then the important follow-up to that, or what are the implications of that for our life? See, this is the theme in the Gospel of Mark that Mark is pressing throughout his Gospel. Who is this man? Who is Jesus. And we find that same theme at the very end of the passage that Brad read this morning, verse 41, when the disciples say, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, this question, who is Jesus, is a question that all of us have to answer. Whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, a devout follower of Christ, who is Jesus and what does this actually mean for our lives? It's a fitting question at the beginning of a new year right? Who is Jesus and what does this mean for us? So Mark opens his gospel as, he bege- as, he's, as he's putting this question forth throughout his gospel of who is Jesus. He opens his gospel with these words. This is the beginning of the gospel, meaning the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he's going to unfold this good news, this gospel throughout his, throughout his gospel. And Mark begins right off the bat with a quote of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And this quote is pointing to this Savior, this Lord who was predicted and prophesied to come. Because all the people, God's people, have been waiting, have been waiting for this Savior. Then we see in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus shows up on the scene. And listen to what he announces This is in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. So the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, God's people have been waiting. Jesus says, that time is fulfilled. The waiting is over. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning Jesus is saying, in me, the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe. It's going to turn heads, right? That is going to get people's attention, and it did. And then what we see in the beginning of the chapters is Jesus had just announced this kingdom, and now he is manifesting the power and authority of this kingdom in himself 
through his teaching. I mean, as he's teaching, people are like, they're astonished. We've never heard teaching like this. And then he is healing people of various ailments. He's casting out demons, evil spirits. He's showing this power and this authority. And so now crowds are beginning to follow Jesus, right? And within the crowds that are following Jesus are the religious leaders of the day. But they are suspect of Jesus. Essentially, as Jesus is going about, they begin to challenge him more and more. Sure, Jesus is doing amazing things. He's healing people, casting out evil spirits, right? Teaching with this authority. But Jesus is also hanging out with outcasts, with the sinners of the day that the religious leaders kept a distance from. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So they're asking the question a different way. The religious leaders are saying, essentially, who does this guy think he is? And so tension continues to build in the gospel until we get to chapter 4. With the crowds increasing, with opposition to Jesus increasing from the religious leaders, Jesus begins to teach in parables, essentially stories. Why? Why does Jesus teach in parables? say a few reasons. One is what the parables would do is they would both reveal and conceal. They would reveal the nature of the kingdom of God. They would reveal who Jesus is in powerful ways for those who had ears to hear, those who would treasure the words of Jesus. But they would also conceal for those who had hard hearts. These stories would not be well understood by those who did not treasure the words of Jesus. So they revealed and they concealed. Here's the other reality. And this is what Mark is doing throughout his gospel. The parables would call forth a response and examination of the crowd's lives, of our lives as we hear them. I'll give you a, a personal example of a parable uh, in this idea that uh, parables call forth a response. It was my freshman year of high school. It was science class. My teacher was Coach Schweitzer. He was the wrestling coach. There are certain teachers that you instinctively know as a student that you can mess with. You would come to find out, I would come to find out that Coach Schweitzer is not one of those teachers. He is lecturing, he's in the middle of his lecture, and this funny comment came to my mind based on his lecture, right? Um, and so lacking wisdom, lacking self-control, I blurred out what I thought was hilarious, right, in the middle of his lecture. I look to my left, nobody's laughing. I look to my right, nobody's laughing. I look in front of me, and there's Coach Schweitzer standing directly in front of my desk and just staring at me for an awkwardly long time. And I don't remember exactly what he was lecturing, and I don't even remember what I commented, but I remember like it was yesterday exactly what he did and said with gestures. Here's what he did. He stood at me. <sighs> Donahoe, I once had a dog that barked when I didn't want it to, and I shot it. How does that apply to your life? <laughs> you get the parable, right? It, there, there it is. Like, it called for an examination and a response that I needed to shut my yapper. That 
is what the gospel of Mark is doing constantly, calling forth the response. He did it with the parables, but here we are in chapter 4. Now, we are about to watch the disciples have an experience with Jesus that will call forth a response. So hopefully you're catching what I'm saying, uh, that this, is, this isn't just for the people back then. The gospel is calling a response from us as we consider this story. So in our story, there is a, uh, there's the storm. It's a, a literal storm that grips the disciples with fear. So the question is, so what does this have to do with us? Uh, lots, right? Even as Brad was um, with, uh, beginning to do introduction stuff this morning, he was talking about the storms of life over and over again, right? That is our reality. We may not experience literal storms like in a boat with Jesus, but figurative storms of all sorts. And these um, storms are storms of sorrow, storms of grief, storms of anxiety, storms of uncertainty. And I would ask this, even for you as you walk in here this morning, what burdens are you bringing in here this morning? Whether from this past year or it could be as you anticipate storms in a new year, what are the burdens? If I could just mention a few burdens, there's, um, there's all kinds of storms. I'll, 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 go, I'll start with big picture. There's cultural storms, right? And if I can just uh, reference Aaron Wren, who is a cultural ana uh, analyst, wrote a piece about essentially the three stages of Christianity in America. And here's what he said. Think about it from a Christian's perspective. He says, before and leading up to 1994, so 30 years ago, before 30 and up to 30 years ago, society at large viewed Christianity as a positive influence in our culture. Then he says, from 1994 roughly to 2014, Christianity, uh, the stance on Christianity shifted to where Christianity was seen more as just a neutral uh, neutral, not necessarily really positive, really negative. And then from 2015 to present, he asserts, and others along with him, that society has now adopted a negative view of Christianity, a, that Christian morality is a threat to public good. And with that, there is pressure to conform and potential persecution if you don't. Do you feel that? in our culture around us, right? And not only that storm, but you could say financial storms or worries. We fear we won't have enough, right? Health, um, whether it's for us or, in my case, aging parents or a, an aging parent as I've lost one in the last six months, right? Those storms that hit so deep and so hard, and then there's relational difficulties, relational storms, friendships, dating, marriage, conflict with others. And how about parenting? I, my wife and I, Tiffany, we're raising four children right now, ages 16, 19, 22, and almost 24. So most of my kids are old enough to go to jail now, right? Yeah. Don't laugh, Ty, juvie. There's always juvie. Right? So um, that's my 16-year-old. Uh, these are real. 
And so with the various storms that we face, um, the question is, will we and our loved ones, will they be okay? Will they walk with God? Will God be faithful? So easy to fall into fear, wonder where God is in the storms, right? Because in many ways, it seems like we are all, often in life either going into a storm in the midst of a storm, or coming out of a storm. That, that's reality in a fallen world. And so it's easy in the midst of these storms to lack faith in God's plans. And so the question is, in the midst of your life storm, what do you do with God? When you are in the midst of a storm, what is your perspective on God? Because when we go through storms, we are prone to doubt God's love and his plan in the midst of our storms. But the truth is, God, take, God does take us through storms. And we're going to see in this passage, Jesus takes his disciples literally into a storm. Takes us there. Why? To grow us. To grow our faith. And the reality is we can have a real faith and a real trust in the midst of a storm because what Mark is very clear about in his gospel is Jesus is greater. He's greater than any storm that we're going to enter into, and he is greater than Jonah. Now, I throw that one out. He's greater than Jonah. You're like, what? Why would you say that? We'll get to that in the very end, so I just want to say that and put it in your back pocket. I just want to talk about how Jesus is greater than any storm but I want us to end with the story of Jonah and the parallel to Mark because I think it's so insightful for us. But let's work through this passage and especially paying attention to the questions that are asked. So let me begin again in verse 35 through 38. I want us to consider the condition that the disciples are in and their reaction. Okay. So verse 35, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in their boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Okay, let's pause there. After a full day of teaching, Jesus essentially goes, says to the disciples, Let's go. Let's go to the other side. So um, they start to go to the other side of Galilee, and what's about to happen is no coincidence, by the way. Now, in any great story, like the Gospels, there is drama, and we have great drama that occurs here. A major storm arises. Now, this was common for the area of the Sea of Galilee, that huge windstorms could take sailors by surprise. And this is such a storm, such an intense storm, that it says the boat is already filling with water. You got to understand boats back then. Uh, excavations reveal that these boats were large. L probably, I, I measured a little bit with my feet, um, probably bigger than the size of this stage. Fifteen men could fit in these boats. So these were big boats. Now you also have to realize part of, many of his disciples were professional fishermen, and they are freaking out. So this storm is no joke. The boat is starting to fill with water. 
they are terrified that they are going to die. They're fearing for their lives. And where is Jesus? Jesus is in the back of the boat on the stern, and the scriptures tell us that he is asleep. Right? So how can Jesus sleep through this storm? Well, a couple reasons. Number one is he is tired. One of the things the Gospel of Mark does is often show us the humanity of Jesus. He's tired from ministry, so he's sleeping. But the other re reason is, unlike the disciples, Jesus has perfect confidence in his heavenly Father. So he's able to sleep through this storm. Now, did the disciples appreciate that Jesus was sleeping? Not exactly. They wake him and they ask a question that really wasn't a question, but more of an accusation. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And there it is. There's the question. Do you not care? I asked you in the very beginning of the sermon, what do you do when you're in the midst of a storm? What is your perspective? And if you could fill in the blank, do you ever have these moments? God, do you not care that fill in the blank? Right? You ever asked that question? Ever wrestled with that? Ever gone through seasons where you're wondering, God, do you not care that and fill in the blank? I want to share a personal story uh, for me of what happens when I think when storms and our fears collide. It was uh, my first year in seminary. It was Greek class. So Greek was the only class. I, my wife and I arrived there uh, to campus. Greek was the only class you take in summer because you want to make sure that uh, you can sur survive Greek. So this is day one of Greek. The professor, this is a three-hour class, it's in the evening. The professor is lecturing on how wonderful and rich the Greek language is. How, um, how the whole New Testament is written in Greek, so it's obviously important. But also how, as pastors, we really need to know this language so that we can avoid biblical errors and all that. So it's almost like first day was motiva motivational speech for taking Greek. So class ends, I go home that night, Tiffany greets me when I walk in with the question, so how was day one? I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait. So glad we're here. Okay, day two hits. Greek, day two. I heard and understand the professor welcome us in and pray, and I understood when he said goodbye at the end. And I kid you not, I was lost for three hours lost the whole time. This is day two of seminary. I just left a good campus ministry job. I just moved my family across the country to go to Covenant Theological Seminary. I did not have a plan B. I wasn't thinking like, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll just, you know, go be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or something, right? I didn't have a plan B. This was it. So I go home that night. I walk the door just like, how was it? Say, I don't know that I can do this. And I reach down, I grab a basketball, and I take it with me. I leave the house because there was a court on campus. Now, this was at night, so I'm under the cover of darkness. 
So I go up to the basketball court, and I just start dribbling angrily, right? And then I start shooting, but I'm not actually shooting the basketball. I am literally chucking it at the backboard. I am so angry, and I'm stewing, and I am um, grumbling, and the grumbling turns to complaining and prayer, and the, but the prayer is actually, God, why have you brought me here to this place for me to fail? I don't have a plan B here. Why would you do this to me? You see what happens in the midst of my storm and my fear? What am I doing with God at that point? God, why would you do this to me? If you are good and you are sovereign, why? Why is the question that I was asking Fear distorts our perspective on God. He led me into the storm. He's going to crush me. Why? Okay. But God knew what he was doing. In, the minute, in those moments when I was asking God on that basketball court, do you not care? God is actually pressing on me a question. Can you not trust me? Can you not trust that I'm good and that I have a plan for you? Can you not trust? And so what I realize as I look back now, I see more clearly what, what God was doing. Because if you think about it with fear, why do we fear? We may fear, um, we fear things we can't control. We fear failure, right? We fear the threat of something, uh, anything that threatens that which we most cherish. Um... And I was terrified of failure, right? Terrified of looking bad. And so what God was beginning to do was to root out one of my deepest fears. And he, here it is. So I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, you know, kind of personal, but from childhood on, from my early age, I had become convinced, my details I won't go into except to say I did have three older brothers. I had become convinced that I was just stupid, that academically I did not have what it took. But here I felt that God called me to seminary, and so he would provide, and here I am day two convinced, oh, so my biggest fear is coming to realization, right, that I actually don't have what it takes, I'm going to fail miserably, and I don't have a plan B. God was asking, can you trust me? It was hard to trust, it still is. It's funny, I was thinking about this, that I often, these fears can be sneaky, right? Usually the, the night before I preach, I'll have these dreams. It didn't happen last night, but normally the dream is I show up to preach, and my notes, my sermon notes, I can't find them anywhere. In one particular dream, I was literally crawling in the rafters of a church to find my notes. The other reality is in every single dream, I am missing articles of clothing when I get up to preach. Right? The way fear can be so sneaky in our lives. How about you? What areas of your life do you find it hard to trust God? Seasons in the past, what seasons have you gone through where it's hard to trust? Right now, currently, where might it be hard for you to trust God with your fears? So for those who struggle to trust God in the midst of storms, we need to hear what comes next. I want us to listen to Jesus' reaction to the disciples' question. 
And we'll see this in verses 39 and 40. Now, when they call it to Jesus, I'm not sure what they thought Jesus could do. They're the professional fishermen. Maybe they thought he could pray in the midst of it. But the, whatever they thought he could do, you could tell it's not what they were expecting based on their reaction. So I want us to listen carefully to this next sentence, verse 39. Okay, so listen carefully. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the disciples and said, Will you just shut up and quit bothering me? I'm trying to sleep. I have more important things to do than listen to you whine like a bunch of man babies. Oh, wait, wrong translation. Yeah, yeah. Some of you are like, man, he really is bad at Greek. Actually, I learned Greek and I did quite well. I realized you had to read the textbook. But anyway... The thing is, um, that's not what Jesus said here. That's not Jesus' character towards us. But do you understand from Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what the enemy of our souls wants us to believe, that God's character is not for his people? That's not what Jesus does here. Mark says, He awoke and rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there is a great calm. Can you imagine the scene? You are in the boat. You are terrified. You think you are going to die. Jesus calls out, peace, be still. And it's not just that the wind died down and the waves began to dissipate. It is that it went from complete storm to complete calm like that. Can you imagine that scene? The one in the boat whom they just called teacher, not exactly the right title for Jesus, right? Uh, just did what only God could do. Like in the Old Testament, you know, when God parted the Red Sea and had control over it? So now they're face to face with the person that just did something only God can do. Jesus in their lives, as they've experienced Jesus, has already... Um, demonstrated his power and authority over sickness as he's healed diseases. He's already demonstrated his authority and power over the demonic world as he's cast out demons. But now he demonstrated his power and authority over creation itself. He just blew their minds. They're asking the question, who then is this? And now it's Jesus' turn to ask some questions. In verse 40, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice Jesus uses the word still here. Like, have you still no faith? In other words, all you've seen me do, all that you have heard, do you still not trust me? Do you still lack faith? Pretty sure this is probably a rhetorical question. Not convinced that he was looking for an answer from his disciples right? And you can relate to the disciples here. I'm sure if I'm there, I'd be like, well, Jesus, we actually thought we were about to die, right? And we experience, we can relate to the disciples. In a fallen world, we experience real fears, real storms. But what is the most com uh, repeated command in the scriptures? Do not fear. And why is that the most repeated command. Ready? Get ready for this. It's profound. Because the disciples were often afraid. 
and so are we. And God graciously over and over tells us, do not fear. So these questions, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Are questions of discipleship. Because Jesus wants to grow us in our faith. He wants to grow us in our trust. wants to grow us in the reality that he's actually greater than anything that we will go through. And he's actually perfectly good, perfectly wise, perfectly powerful. So that's what you need. You need somebody perfectly wise, good, and powerful if you're in the midst of a storm. And that's, that's who Jesus is. So God wants to, if I could say it this way, God wants to grow us into people of Psalm 46. This was our assurance of faith that Brad read this morning, right? Just this is the Psalm, Psalm 46. The Psalms help us with our laments, whatever emotions we face. Just listen to these words again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam. And then let me paraphrase some of this. It says God is in the midst of his people. God will help them. So God is with us. This psalm goes on to say, Behold the works of the Lord, meaning look back in the midst of storms, look back at God's faithfulness, look back in the scriptures, look back in our own lives at God's faithfulness. And then the psalm ends with this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the midst of our storms, God will be exalted. So what are we to do with our fears? Probably not grumble and complain to others, but probably to do what the disciples did, call out, God, do you care? And he does care. He does care. What is the proof? What is the ultimate proof that God cares about our lives and our storms and all that? Let's go there. So, verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even this, the wind and the sea obey him? Now, Notice that before the, before, um, before the storm, before he calms the storm, the disciples were filled with fear. But what Mark tells us is now after the storm, after they just witnessed what Jesus did, he says they are filled with great fear, even greater fear. It's interesting. Um, R.C. Sproul, who was a theologian, wrote all kinds of books, uh, makes this observation in his book, The Holiness of God says, the father of modern psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, articulated the theory that we invent God out of fear of nature. He, said, he goes on to say, we can't control earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and I threw in there avalanches because I think, you know, he neglected Colorado. Um, he says, so we invent a God who is more powerful to help us with our fears. Essentially, Christianity is just a crutch to help us with scary things. But the scriptures here, this passage flips that on its head, right? The disciples are now more frightened after this storm. And Sproul asked this question, why would the disciples invent a God whose holiness was more terrifying than the forces of nature 
that provoked them to invent a God in the first place. And the point is, no one invents this kind of God. This God either is or isn't. No one invents this kind of God. And we're left with one question. Who then is this that even this, the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Jesus gives an answer. He gives multiple answers. But one answer in particular is in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus called out that one greater than Jonah is here. Okay, what's that about? So if you understand or, or know the, the story of Jonah is in the Old Testament, right? If, if, this, uh, if you're not that familiar with the Bible, it's a story, has to do with a big fish. Anyway, um, what I want to do is, is compare the stories briefly because what Mark has in mind, and even the way that he patterns his story, we see similarities with this story of Jonah. So in both stories... Both main characters, Jonah and Jesus, get in a boat. In both accounts, a terrifying storm hits, and there's similar language. In Jonah, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. In the Gospel of Mark, a great windstorm arose. Okay, in both accounts, Jonah and Jesus are asleep during the storm. In both accounts, the sailors in Jonah, the disciples in Mark, are, similar language, afraid that they are going to perish. And both, uh, they, they wake up Jesus and they wake up Jonah. In both accounts, right after that, a miraculous intervention calms the storms. Right? For Jonah, as God has revealed that he's at fault because he's running from God's plan, he is thrown into the sea and that stills it. In the count of Mark, Jesus, with his word, says, peace be still, and, the, and uh, the sea is calmed. And then in both stories, the disciples and sailors, or the sailor, yeah, disciples and sailors become even more frightened at the hand of God. Now, on a surface level reading, does seem to be a difference between these two stories. In Jonah, the storm becomes calm when they th throw Jonah in. And in Mark, the storm becomes calm when Jesus speaks into it. But I love how Tim Keller, uh, author, theologian, pastor, brilliant, uh, I love how he explains this. He says, in the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And they threw him into the sea, which doesn't happen in Mark's story, he goes on to say, or does it? I think Mark is showing that the stories aren't actually different when you stand back a bit and look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. How is he greater than Jonah? And this is the gospel. Remember, in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he says the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus at the very end of the gospel, he demonstrates, he shows, he declares what this good news really is. And here it is. That whereas Jonah ran from God's plan, what did Jesus do? Danny talked about this with the music this morning. What's amazing about Christmas that Jesus actually took on flesh. He took on flesh and walked towards the storm. Took on flesh, came to rescue sinners. Jonah, in his story, was disgusted by certain sinners that he did not want God to save. 
But look at Jesus. Who did he hang out with? The worst of the worst. Because he came for sinners. Okay? And what did Jesus do for sinners? He cast himself into the storm of sin. Genesis 3. Right? When Adam and Eve disobey God, go in rebellion, we've experienced it ever since. They wrecked everything. What did Jesus do? He entered into that storm by the way of the cross, dying for us. Colossians chapter 1 said, having made peace by the blood of his cross. But the story, thankfully, doesn't end there. Rose from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death. And where is he now? Where is Jesus now in the midst of our storms? Okay, if I were to do, if I were to do a quiz, right, or, or a test, I would have two questions. Number one is, who is this? Who is Jesus? If it was a fill in the blank, the answer would be God, right? And then if I did a multiple test question, here's what the question would be. Where is Jesus now? Is he A, ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things? Is he B, with us by way of the Holy Spirit? Is he C, leading us into and through storms? Or is he D, all of the above? You're getting nervous, weren't you? He is D, all the above. Any storm we are in, God is ruling, Jesus is ruling and reigning from the right, side, or from the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he's not just there. What did he tell his disciples after he sends? He will send the Holy Spirit to be with us. So he is with us no matter what we go through. And yes, he will lead us into storms, and he does. And it's not because he's forsaken us. He can't do that to his children. He can't punish his children. That punishment was taken out on Christ, on the cross. So what's he doing? He's growing us. He's grown us to depend on us. He's grown us to see how great he actually is. He's not asleep. At the right hand of the Father, he never sleeps. And what does the scripture say that he will return? That there is a day of judgment and salvation. And the question is, who is this? So I will say, if you're in here this morning, if you, you're seeking, you're wondering, maybe you're not convinced of Christ, just know that the scriptures do speak of a judgment that's coming because of sin. It's a judgment of those who have rejected not following his son, Jesus. But there is hope that for the Christian, what Jesus did on the cross, he brought about perfect peace. And we'll experience it for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In the midst of the storm, I'll end with this. In the midst of the storm, the disciples asked the question, do you not care? They had to wait and see just how much Jesus cared. But what about for us? The question I asked earlier, how do we know? What's the proof that he cares? From our vantage point, we get to look back, and the answer is the cross. It's the cross. He cared enough to sacrifice himself for us. And so as we consider the Lord's table this morning, as we prepare our hearts for it, just recognize Jesus sacrificed himself for us. As we look at the table, what we'll see 
is we'll see bread that represents his body that was given for us, his body that was crucified. We'll see wine or juice that represents blood, his blood that was shed for us. And if I can quote one last quote from Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah was upset with God, and here's what he said. Because jo Jonah didn't want God to save the people that Jonah didn't like. So Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. For us, what does that leave us with? Hopefully gratitude. That God is merciful. His steadfast love to us by way of the cross. And because of the cross, he has relented from eternal disaster for us. What a great hope, what a great salvation, what a great Lord. So gratitude, because he's greater. He's more powerful than any storm. Not only that, he's with us in the midst of the storm, and finally and ultimately, he has brought peace by the way of the cross. To that, let's give praise. Lord, we give you thanks that you are more powerful than anything that we will face. And when we're in the midst of it, and we're wondering if you love us, thank you that you are with us. If we are your sons and daughters, that you are with us no matter what. And that through the cross, you brought about peace. Through your blood. So help us as your... I pray for those who, are, who have bowed their knees and their hearts to you in this room. Assure us of your love. Help us to walk with strength no matter what you bring our way. For those who maybe are not convinced of you, I pray that they would see how beautiful, how glorious, how great you really are, that they would turn to you, trust you. Thanks for this time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.